Hi, everybody. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, if people are just tuning in, this is the first time they've listened to the program. Why should they listen to this program? Well, Jimmy, like you said, we do look at current events. We have a unique background ourselves, which allows us to get an accurate description of what is going on in the world. And we also have a grounding in Bible prophecy. And as we look at Bible prophecy, we see that things that are taking place right now are actually setting the stage for that future prophecy to be fulfilled. You're absolutely right. And we've got a lot to cover today from all the way from the European Union to the Middle East, uh, examining current events. So let's get to it. Our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our guest. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Rick, it's a pleasure to be with you, as always. Well, Ken, we've got several things to get to today, but one of the first things that I wanted to talk to you about is it looks like President Erdogan from Turkey is trying to be the negotiator-in-chief there in the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Uh, He is, and he was in Ukraine, uh, in Kiev on Thursday, meeting with President Zelensky, along with the Secretary General of the United Nations, Guterres. And he is hoping to uh, serve as the intermediary. He will be talking to Vladimir Putin in the coming days with the results of these talks. I doubt that there is any progress that will be made uh, through his intercession. But what is absolutely crystal clear is that Erdogan is making out like gangbusters from this war. And I even wonder whether he has a real interest in ending it because it's such a boon for the Turkish economy. It's very interesting. I mean, Erdogan has kind of been all over the map, uh, and it seems like he's more of an opportunist at this point in time than a statesman in this instance, isn't he? Uh, He's been tremendously successful in playing both sides of this war. On the one hand, he's selling weapons to Ukraine. He's been giving them, selling them these drones, which have been highly effective, the armed drones that they've used to target Russian artillery positions and, and ammo dumps and other things. On the other hand, he is doing uh, tremendous uh, trade with Russia. The trade between Turkey and Russia has essentially doubled over the past year. And it's not just Russian oil going to Turkey. It's also Western technology going through Turkey to Russia. So Erdogan's Turkey is essentially a massive sanctions violator. Their banks have, ag- have adopted the Russian payment system, this mere payment system as an alternative to the uh, SWIFT payment system uh, from which Russian financial institutions have been banned. So he is really throwing uh, the Russians a lifeline. And uh, uh, that is something that uh, he's paying no price for at this point. Well, let's stay in Europe and uh, talk about the European Union. It seems like a few of members are upset at the way that Germany and France have been dominating the European Union. Uh, Absolutely. Poland and Hungary uh, are are very upset. They recently, the prime minister of Poland, Maciusz Morawiecki, published an op-ed where he criticized uh, the French and the Germans. He said they were running the EU as a, quote, oligarchy. They were trying to exclude the Eastern European new members of the EU. They were imposing uh, a number of restrictions on them, requirements for full EU membership to get subsidies, uh, COVID subsidies that other member states have been able to get. And there's some substance to what the prime minister is saying. Uh, Remember, the Poles and the Hungarians, they were warning about Russia and about Putin and Russian aggression well before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And France and Germany didn't 
pay them any heed. They didn't listen to them. The Germans uh, had just this tremendous economic dependence on Russia energy supplies, both oil and gas, and they didn't want to hear anything that could possibly jeopardize that. Well, now the Germans are going to lose Russian gas supplies by the month of December, and they're going to have a very cold winter. They should have listened to the Poles and the Hungarians when they could. Now they're just trying to punish them. And it's really extraordinary to see this um, this new split inside the EU. We used to talk about a north-south split, the rich countries in the north and the poorer countries, Greece, even Italy, and others in the south. Now it's an east-west split, the new NATO members, the new EU members from Eastern Europe versus old Europe. Well, we'll move away from Europe and go to the Middle East. I'd like to talk about Iran again. And uh, when we look at Iran this week, they say they're tantalizingly close to a new deal in these nuclear arms talks, but that comes against the backdrop of an attack against the author, Salman Rushdie. And also, when we spoke about this last week, the plot to kill uh, the former national security advisor, John Bolton. And both of these events have their roots in the religious Islamic party there in Iran. So uh, how is that playing into these nuclear arms talks? Well, it is having an impact in particular on Congress and public opinion here in the United States. Uh, remember, we, we know about the plots against John Bolton in particular, but others as well, because the FBI has actually released information on them. They've released affidavits against Iranian officials uh, who have tried to hire assassins and other people to uh, gather intelligence on John Bolton and other targets. The FBI has what they call a duty to warn briefing that they give former officials or people in sensitive positions where they call them up or they call them into their office and they say, look, we have information that you have become a target of a foreign intelligence organization. I received a duty to warn briefing earlier this year. Mm. Uh, it was not about a physical uh, threat to me at this particular point. It was about a cyber threat. And they said a foreign intelligence organization has targeted you and infiltrated your computer and, and communications systems, devices. And I said, well, what should I do about it? They said, get new ones. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a rather expensive thing to do. But mm. uh, nonetheless, uh, this is very serious. And the Iranians are extremely active. And uh, the FBI is looking at this. So the FBI is not just targeting Donald Trump. They are actually looking <laughs> at Iranian threats here in the United States. And that is part of the calculus in the nuclear deal as well. Well, interesting statements about the nuclear deal from Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid. He says that in the current situation, the time has come to walk away from the table. Uh, right. And, and I would happen to agree with him. But his reasoning is very simple. He said that, look, the Iranians are ha have already exacted uh, numerous concessions from the European Union negotiators who, were, who have been involved in the day-to-day -day negotiations with Iran over this. And it's, it's allowed Iran essentially to maintain its nuclear weapons program intact under a new nuclear deal. Uh, they will have to give up the uh, 3,000 tons of uranium they have enriched over the past couple of years, but they're allowed to keep their uh, fifth-generation centrifuges. They're allowed to keep them operating. They're allowed to import technology. They're allowed to do all kinds of things. Plus, they get sanctions relief, and they get uh, the release of about 150 to $200 billion in uh, oil revenues that have been blocked 
overseas. So uh, Lapid has, has said, uh, look, this is this is a bridge too far. Uh, this deal is no deal. Walk away from it. And he's sending his national security advisor, Eyal Haruta, to Washington next week to try to convince the Biden White House to walk away. Well, we'll keep tabs on those situations. But one last thing before you go, Ken, uh, I told our listeners last week I saw you on Newsmax. They did an interview for your new book. The new book is titled And the Rest is History. And I've just been looking at it on Amazon right now, just reading the reviews. And you actually sent me uh, a little bit about it uh, a little while back. But it's just so interesting, for one, for all those uh, listeners of ours that listen to you every week, they, you you have so much insight and you've kind of been around the world. It, it's, it's like you've been an eyewitness to history for the last 30 years. You show up all over the place. Very interesting. You have an incredible story to tell, Ken. So can you just let us know a little bit, maybe give us a, a little bit more insight into your new book? Well, you know, your dad and I like to joke over the air uh, of some of the places I had been and, and some of the places where I was calling in to the show, whether mm -hmm. it was in Iraq or in Israel uh, or, or or elsewhere around the world. And in, in this book and the rest is history, I get to tell my story. Huh. I finally tell my story. It's not just reporting from those places, but I tell you what was behind the reporting and what happened to me and how I got there and some of the people I met. Because you can't always uh, tell those human sided stories. Uh, there, there are many, many Middle East stories. Uh, just very quickly, one of them uh, involves meeting a, a young man, a Palestinian refugee. And it's one of the first incidents that really sort of turns my mind about the Palestinians and the PLO. And this young man in, the, in a refugee camp in, in Nablus uh, taught me essentially uh, what the PLO was all about. And he said, we can't talk about them here because they will kill us. We are all essentially hostages to the PLO. That is something that the so-called mainstream media never reported. And it's something that I became very uh, aware of early on. And not just because I was taken hostage by the PLO in Beirut, a story I also tell, which is where I had my born-again experience and, and understood that I had a savior who was there to lift me up, quite literally as well as spiritually, mm. out of the darkness in which I had been living. But uh, these experiences on the ground uh, in the mi Middle East are something that uh, colored my, my viewpoint and later led me to uh, become a witness also to the persecuted church in northern Iraq. So uh, if you want to hear more about it, uh, the stories are lots of fun. Uh, it's not all me, me, me either. It's a lot of other people you're going to meet, uh, that, uh, uh, both media personalities like Pierre Salinger and, and folks who are very well known like Simon Wiesenthal. Uh, but uh, I encourage you to get the book. It's at Amazon. It's been a number one bestseller, actually, even before it's uh, uh, been on sale. It does seem so interesting. It will satisfy our curiosity just to kind of find out a little bit about you, Ken. But just as like you're telling that story about uh, being in the refugee camp there, it will help to kind of put different political, geopolitical events in the world in perspective. So uh, I definitely encourage you. It comes out August 30th, correct? That's right. It'll be released on August 30th. It is on sale now, but it'll be released on all. You'll get your books on August 30th. Well, that sounds great. Well, Ken, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. It's always a pleasure. God bless. Great interview, Rick. We've got to take a break. And when we come back, our Middle East news update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend.
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The Pakistani Taliban, known as the TTP, have increased their presence in the Swat region. The area was once a Taliban stronghold until extensive military operations removed them. Now, Nehemiah with FMI says armed men can once again be seen roaming the streets. People in the region now live in fear, especially Christians and other minorities. Ask God to strengthen FMI partners in the region. And you've probably heard the story of Cinderella, a girl who was treated as a second-class family member by her stepmother. It was a similar story for a girl in Belarus named Sonia. Her parents, both alcoholics, gave her up at birth. Eric Mock with the Slavic Gospel Association says she was treated more as hired help than a child. When she became a teenager, she started going to the church of a pastor named Sergei. There, she learned of God's unending love for her and has been baptized, a real happily ever after ending. Mission Network News, a service of One-Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. This is our Middle East News Update. It's a segment that we do every week. And we typically have a Middle East author and journalist, Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Glad to do it, Rick, as every week. Well, several different things to get at this week. And the most interesting, or one of the most interesting, is the fact that it seems like Israel's relationship with Turkey, which had deteriorated for a while, is now beginning to warm up. It's warmed up considerably, Rick. In fact, uh, the two governments, the Israeli government and the Turkish government, agreed to exchange ambassadors for the first time in four years. Uh, Turkey pulled its ambassador out of Israel in 2018 after 60 Palestinians were killed during clashes along the Gaza border. And of course, the relations, as you said, had been tense for years before that, going back to Basically, uh, President Erdogan of Turkey siding fully with Hamas, uh, publicly backing them, sending them actual aid, and then trying to uh, break a Israeli naval blockade of the Gaza Strip meant to prevent weapons from being smuggled into the zone. And uh, there was a confrontation at sea um, a decade ago, et cetera. So very tense. But um, Erdogan has realized over the past couple of years with his currency falling, I think, 60 percent in value during that time that he needed to have more regional allies and that Israel was an important source of income for Turkey, especially uh, Israeli tourists visiting the country used to be the number one destination, Rick, uh, of Israeli tourists. It's a short flight and there's lovely coastal resorts on the Mediterranean there. 
And uh, that basically dried up uh, with the breaking of relations. So he needs that. And also Israel's developing this natural gas, and he wants to be a conduit of that to Europe. Turkey does, uh, Erdogan does. So for those reasons, he's chosen to cool his rhetoric. And the president of Israel, Herzog, was in Turkey in March, and now they're exchanging ambassadors. So basically, relations are back to more or less normal. But we know that Erdogan remains a strong supporter of the Palestinians and especially of the Islamic militants amongst them. And that will create future problems, I'm sure. Well, Dave, is it fair to say, and we've talked about on this program, how Erdogan wants to be the leader of the Islamic Arabic world, this shift towards stronger relationship with Israel is probably more economic than it is a shift in ideology with Erdogan. Oh, definitely. He's still uh, very close to Iran. He was there, as we all know, last uh, few weeks ago after Biden's visit in July uh, there with the Russian president. And the Israelis were not excited about that. The Israelis are also not happy with Turkey's renewed attacks upon the Kurds in northern Syria. Uh, This week, there's been heavy shelling in that area and some people killed. And uh, there's other issues between Israel and Turkey. But yes, Turkey wants to be uh, Erdogan himself wants to be seen as the great overall um, Arab Muslim or he's not an Arab, but Muslim leader in the region. That's not likely to happen. His relations with Egypt are still quite strained. Um, Some of the Gulf states are quite strained. And again, with Israel, well, they're restoring formal relations, but there's still quite a few issues between the two countries. And that will remain. Well, we'll shift a little bit to the Palestinian Authority, David, as we continue our discussion here on the Middle East News Update. Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas created an uproar when he, in a speech in Germany, of all places, uh, said that Israel had perpetrated what amounts to 50 Holocaust on the Palestinian people. Could you tell us what's going on there, why he might have said that and the fallout from that? Well, actually, he was uh, speaking at a press conference with um, the chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, uh, who had invited him to come to Germany as his guest. So he was, you know, on their soil. And one of the reporters there asked uh, Abbas about the upcoming 50th anniversary next month, September 5th, of the terrible Munich massacre. Now, I know, Rick, you just turned 50, so you were a baby when that happened. I was 17. I had just invited a bunch of friends over to my parents' home. They were at the lake to watch the Olympics, and on came the news of this. It makes me cry today, the Mm. capture of of all the Israeli athletes, and of course, 11 were killed, and it was a terrible standoff and a terrible time, and it was Black September that Abbas had a role in financing that carried out this terrible attack. So he was asked, would he apologize for that, uh, coming up on this 50th anniversary, being in Germany? And he said, basically, no, and that we are, in fact, the um, recipients of massacres, and then he said, Holocaust. 50 Holocaust, and he said the word in English to make it clear, by the Israelis over the years since 1948. Well, that outraged the German media. It outraged the German political world. Um, the Israeli ambassador, Ron Posner, said that he spoke, uh, Posner said that he spoke to some of them, and all of the political parties from left to right were furious with the statement. 
And in fact, the chancellor put out a statement saying that he said it's a, a disgrace. Uh, it's monstrous to talk like this. Uh, he said that Abbas was exploiting the stage that he got from the German leaders. And he said there is nothing like the crime of the Holocaust uh, at all being committed in Israel. And of course, the Israeli Prime Minister Lapid said the same thing. He said it was a disgrace, a moral disgrace, a monstrous lie. And, uh, you know, that it, it, that sort of talk needs to stop. And Lapid forced basically a very lame, I would have called it, apology the next day from the Palestinian Authority, uh, trying to say, well, he meant crimes and not, uh, a, you know, not a, a genocide to wipe everyone out exactly. Uh, and uh, Lapid said, okay, that's good enough. And the Germans said, that's okay too, and we'll carry on. So, you know, they, they all need to cooperate, but it just, it's typical of the things that Abbas has said over the years to, um, to take that 50th anniversary, that number 50, and to turn it into the comment that he made is, is just disgusting for sure. And uh, a sad state of affairs, and it's the sort of thing that Israel has to deal with all the time. Well, we continue on, and you mentioned earlier on in this report that there were quite a few in, in the German media and the German political world that did push back on these statements by Mahmoud Abbas. But uh, in general, Europe, and in specific the European Union, continues to support Palestinian groups that Israel says are terrorist groups. In Israel, it's relatively easy to prove that they're terrorist groups when they pay uh, the families of people who commit terrorism against Israelis. Well, yes, the European Union uh, foreign ministry made a strong statement against Israel on Wednesday, I think it was, after Israeli forces raided seven institutions uh, in Judea and Samaria in the Arab areas of the West Bank um, and closed them down. These uh, are mostly associated with the Popular Front PLO group. Um, a more radical group even than the uh, the novices group, and um, they are charities they you know help women, they do this and that formally, but as you say, the Israelis have a lot of proof that uh, they funnel money to terrorist groups, they pay terrorist uh, stipends, as you said, they carry out attacks, they're doing all these other things under the surface, while on the surface pretending just to be, you know, helpful organizations. So Israel closed them down, and the PA uh, protested vigorously over it, but the point is, is is that the European Union funds all of these groups, Rick, and the U.S. has given aid to them in the past as well, but Donald Trump stopped that, and so far Joe Biden hasn't restarted aid to these non-governmental groups, but the European Union all along has been funding them, and so they protested and said, no, there's no evidence there's any terrorist activity, and the Israelis basically said in response, well, we'll sit down with you and show you everything we've got privately, of course, and uh, you can make a determination, but we're telling you they are terrorist front groups, and therefore they were closed down. Well, as we wrap up our Middle East news update, these stories that we talk about and that we reported on today with uh, Abbas in uh, Germany and the European Union being anti-Semitic, they're essentially being anti-God. They look at the success of the state of Israel or the Jewish people, and that is the main reason or motivation behind what they're doing. 
Well, it is, Rick. And as I've said before on your program with your late father and with you, uh, the bottom line here between uh, the Jewish people and the Arabs, for the most part, Arab Muslims, is whose God is God. Mm. Whose God is God, and therefore, who has a right to this land, and on and on. And they certainly believe it isn't the God of the Bible, the Muslims, and Muhammad's the final prophet, etc. And that they're not going to give that up anytime soon. And that will always provide, and of course, the quotes in the Quran against the Jews, a strong basis for these sorts of statements to come out. Well, David, we appreciate your views as both a journalist and as a student of the Bible. We appreciate you coming on the program every week, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Rick. I do, too. God bless. Thanks, Dave. Nobody like David Dolan. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, Winky Madad, you won't want to miss that, and Tom Meyer talking about a special event taking place during the Feast of Tabernacles right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. One of my favorites, Israel Madad. Winky Madad joins us. He's a regular guest on our program and a journalist who this week has a op-ed article in the Jerusalem Post. Winky, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me on again. Well, Winky, I would like to start out talking about that article. And the, the title is, uh, The New York Times Continues to Minimize Jews' Claims to the Temple Mount. It's an opinion piece that you put in. Could you tell us the, the general gist of that piece that you have in the Jerusalem Post today? Sure. As most of uh, our listeners know, the New York Times, besides having a editorial slant, nevertheless is one of the most major influential newspapers for sure in the United States and maybe in the top five in the world. It just, that's the fact, like it or not. Mm -hmm. And they have had several stories over the past several years now, not that often, but enough that they would, my opinion would be, you would think they would know better by now because they've been forced to correct several times. And the background to this is that every time they find a way to mention the Temple Mount, let's say two things basically happen in the language. One, its value as an historic, ancient, religious site of over maybe 3,000, close to 3,000 years, a little bit less, is minimized. It's ancient, it's in antiquity, the temples were said to be there, we don't know exactly where, and all sorts of phrases like that. So the reader, and I'm talking about 
anybody in Ashkash or wherever they're reading the newspaper, if they're not in a yeshiva or university, would say, oh, well, you know, it's one of those unimportant places. People can't make up their minds, etc. And the second thing is it's always brought into a connection with the flying winged horse that Muhammad the prophet took and landed in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And the Arabs conquered the site only in the 7th century and then built their mosque and a few other buildings on the site of where the temple courtyards used to be, as if they're equal, as if we have to accept that situation. And so uh, it's very annoying. I don't want to go into any other sort of uh, comparisons, but it's like you're married to a woman for, say, 30 years, and someone walks by and says, uh, is that your so-called wife? <laughs> you know, it's like you're on a defensive immediately, as if you really don't believe uh, the situation that the Temple Mount had the two temples on it. I mean, the Romans wrote about it. The Greeks wrote about it. It's not only the Jews. We have a lot of uh, testimony, including archaeology, except like that. But the times, when it comes to the Jewish claim to Jerusalem, always manages to diminish it or minimize it, as I wrote. Well, Winky, in reading the article myself, and, and of course, we often talk about the Temple Mount, here on Prophecy Today, we know the importance of the Temple Mount to the Jewish people, and we understand that, and we can appreciate it. Of course, like I said, that's talked about very often on this program. But one of the things that struck me as I was reading this article, and uh, again, to our listeners, you can go to the Jerusalem Post to see this article, to read this article, and, and we'll link to it from our website as well, is it's not necessarily an in-your-face, or not always an in-your-face um, just diminishing the Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, it seems to be a little bit more done in a sneaky way, kind of more of an insidious, just kind of changing a few words here and there and kind of building on that. It's it's kind of a sneaky way of getting rid of the Jewish uh, history and presence on the Temple Mount, isn't it? Absolutely. I agree with you. And, and I'll, I'll take one more minute of our time. Okay, we know that there's an argument whether or not According to Jewish ritual law, Jews should be up on the Temple Mount at all or in only certain portions or otherwise. But that's only one aspect of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is central to every single Jew who has a little bit of religion and observance in him. I mean, the Passover Seder, the festive meal on the first night of Passover holiday, is a recreation of the Paschal sacrifice meal. Every single Jew, even non-religious Jews, when they get married, they will smash a glass in remembrance of the fact that we don't have the temple today, or we sing next year in Jerusalem. Now, even if they don't exactly know what it means, that's the reality. The mm -hmm. Temple Mount, I'm not talking about those of us who fervently believe that sooner than later, a third temple will be built, and there will probably be sacrifices of some sort, etc. But it's as if the New York Times is a reform synagogue that sort of dismisses ancient and antiquity observances and beliefs. I mean, we're way beyond that now. And that's not their job. Their job is to report the facts. And they don't have to bring all this baggage into it or even downplay the Temple Mount when they try to compare it 
to the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Dome of the Rock or whatever they want to call that as an Arab site or a Muslim site, I should say. Well, we always tell our listeners, as you look and consume media, make sure you understand that many of these sites and many of these journalists there have narratives and they have a preconceived notion and they will transmit that. You need to be careful from where you get your news and you also need to read it with the critical eye. Well, I certainly appreciate that article and I encourage our listeners to go to the Jerusalem Post site to read it or come to our website at prophecytoday.com. We'll post it there. Well, the next thing I'd like to talk about, and I just wanted to get your opinion. In the previous segment, we talked to Dave Dolan, and he told us about the statement that Mahmoud Abbas made in Germany, basically citing or saying that Israel was the perpetrator of 50 holocausts. We've talked about this a little bit uh, with Dave, but I'd like to get your perspective as a Jew living in Israel for over 50 years now. You actually do live in what the media may call the occupied territory. We like to refer to it as Judea and Samaria. So you have quite a bit of interaction with the Palestinian people. But uh, I'd like to get your take on that uh, speech that Abbas gave in Germany. Well, Abbas has always been a problem. First of all, his doctorate is basically a revisionist review that the Holocaust didn't really happen as much as we think it happened. He even adopts some of these weird theories uh, that there were very few uh, Jews killed, and not so much by gas, uh, and all sorts of really out of, out of the rational uh, thinking on this, and that basically the Zionists were cooperating with the Nazis in the Holocaust. This is his doctorate in Moscow University about uh, 40 years ago. So we've always had a problem with him. But you would think that the leader, supposedly of a country or a state, as he pretends to be, he's not, but he pretends to be, would think of all places to make such a statement, Germany should be the last one Mm. to do that. Mm. Because everybody in Germany knows, because they have a a school system, an education curriculum, and they're very, very um, sensitive to the historical reality of what Germany did during World War II to the Jews, that you can't say that Israel did even one Holocaust uh, to the Arab population. Uh, I'm very sorry, but with no matter how much you could blame Israel for any of the conflict and the violence, we didn't set up crematoria, we didn't set up gas chambers, We didn't herd Arabs into concentration camps. I mean, none of this holds water uh, so that to say that makes you look not only ridiculous, but as mendacious, as as an evil person trying to spin a tale. And of course, referring to my previous answer on on the previous subject, it's all make up of all their national mythology either it's Temple Mount or the Holocaust or what the Jews did to us or whatever. And it's it's a sorrowful state because it means that they're not really ready for statehood because they have nothing positive to say. All they are is anti. And, and And it's very depressing because it means we have no coexistence, we have no cooperation, and that means we have no peace. So while I could say a lot about it, I want to make sure that our listeners understand what this is influencing, what is the, what is the uh, impression being made on Israelis, as I think part of your question was, I mean, is this the guy that we have to make peace with? Hmm. Is this the guy that continues to pay salaries to terrorists? 
and the Western world basically lets them get away with it. You know, one or two days went by, they wrote about it, and then who's going to remember what Mahmoud Abbas said because he needs a state, is the mantra. And I think that's very unfortunate. I guess that Mahmoud Abbas is entitled to his own opinion, but where we need to be concerned is it seems like many in our government, uh, we are pushing the country of Israel to do business with this so-called peace partner. You posted something on your Twitter where you talked about how basically the greatest thing that Abbas has ever done is kill the peace camp, those that want peace, that are longing for peace in Israel. He's basically crushed the Israeli peace camp. Yes, I mean, that is the, uh, it's a double-edged sword, sort of, of that way. You could look at it, the fact is, this is all that's bothering the lefties. I mean, they're going for peace, and darn that Mahmoud Abbas, he had to open up his mouth again. Can't he just keep quiet and get on with the so-called peace process? And of course, from my point of view, I've made this point several times in the past. You're going into business with someone. You want to make a profit. Or and or you want to make people buy your product because you really do believe that your product is good, right? And so you have all these positive aspects. And if someone sort of cheats on the other side, you feel very bad and you break up the uh, the partnership. I mean, it happens all the time in commercial life. And all the world wants us to make is more than a commercial contract with Mr. Abbas and his Palestinian Authority. And this guy is acting completely against the whole idea of the partnership. But the world, from the New York Times to the State Department to Whitehall or whatever else is uh, foreign, uh, the EU, whatever I can, you and I can think of, right? They're all pressuring Israel. Oh, get along. Ignore his statement. You have to forgive him. He wasn't, he's 86 years old. And uh, he's only been not elected 17 years ago, so he's not that democratic in any state in any way. And we have to pay the price. And it's not going to be a monetary price or a commercial price, as in business. It's going to be lives. It's going to be environment. It's going to be uh, our future as a country and a people. And that's what really bothers me at the, at the end of, this, uh, of an episode like this. Mahmoud Abbas said it was 50 Holocaust, another thing on your website. You linked to Palestinian Media Watch, and they have an article there. And basically, they have maybe 15 different comparisons by official Palestinian Authority people linking Israel uh, to being Nazis. Of course, that's a very sensitive subject. The systematic killing of over 6 million Jews, uh, understandably a very serious subject in Israel, and you're calling them, I mean, it's just the comparison. It, it, it doesn't even make any sense. We agree. And, uh, and I think our listeners should agree with us because we're trying to make it clear to them. I mean, for those who sort of follow the news sometimes, or they want, or they've seen clips of pro-Palestine demonstrations, about 50% of the time you see either signs or hear it that Israel is committing genocide. Genocide on Gaza, genocide on the Palestinian people, genocide on Palestine. And if it wasn't such a, a sensitive topic, you could make a almost a joke out of it that Israel is the worst genocidal hmm. country or power in the world. The Arabs keep on growing demographically, right? Or they claim, in fact, uh, to be very large. 
and you haven't, if anybody looks around, nothing like genocide happens. Mm -hmm. Yes, when they open fire or attack Israeli soldiers or otherwise, there will be a confrontation, right? And they always say that it uh, is Arab youth confronted Israeli soldiers, but they'll never tell you exactly what they did, like throw mm -hmm. blocks from roofs mm -hmm. and, and, and killing Israeli soldiers uh, that way and stuff like that. Again, going back to the point you made about the media, the media is shallow, the media is incomplete, and too often, too many of the media outlets are literally biased on this issue, and you have to be very careful, and everybody who is interested in finding out what's happening in God's little corner of the Middle East here in Israel, uh, owe themselves to uh, make sure they have a diverse media background on what the news is. Well, one final question, Winky. As you referenced earlier, Germany has a complicated history uh, with the Jewish people, and the new German chancellor, Olaf Scholz, he pushed back when uh, Abbas referenced apartheid in reference to Israel, but was mainly silent when he talked about the Holocaust. I'd just like to know what you thought of the German response to those statements and that speech by Abbas. Well, uh, as you said, he did immediately or right afterwards respond on the apartheid. I am willing to give him the benefit of the doubt that either he was sleeping during Abbas's speech or he missed uh, the translation or he wasn't paying attention at all. It happens. You and I both know politicians. Sometimes it can be up very late at night discussing something very important. Not often, but it happens sometimes. But he, he did respond to it eventually. Of course, I'm disappointed, and I think a lot of Israelis are, they didn't immediately, you know, stop Abbas and say, just a second, sir, the, the, the use of the term Holocaust, and especially 50, mm. in refer, reference to the conflict, is out of order. And the point is that too often, especially European political leaders, are very slow on calling attention or calling out the moral and otherwise uh, errors of the Palestinian Authority and what they're doing on the ground. And it will only, it will, will not help the peace process because Israelis simply are unwilling to trust uh, diplomats coming in on the side of the Palestinian Authority to, to go forward on peace when we see what's really behind their thinking. Uh, that's certainly what this speech did. I think it revealed the character of those that participated in it and those that pushed back and replied to it. So uh, we appreciate you commenting on this. We appreciate you coming on and sharing with our listeners about this subject. We, as always, we, we very much value your opinion, Winky. So thanks so much. Thanks for being on the program today, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me on and your patience with some of my long answers. <laughs> But I hope our listeners uh, appreciate that. So goodbye to you and our listeners. Well, Israel Madad has always given us information pertinent to what's taking place there politically on the ground in Israel. He catches us up. Uh, we focus on the Jewish people. There's a reason, uh, as we've always said, why we focus on the Jewish people. Because God has a plan for the Jews in the future. He's not finished with them yet. And really, keeping your eye on the Jewish people helps us to understand 
where we are in prophecy. And so I think that is so very important. Thanks, Rick, for doing that interview with Israel. The, very important information in the land. I trust that you appreciate it as much as we do. Well, a longtime friend of ours, uh, we met in Israel. He is a professor who taught Bible survey, the Bible lands. Uh, he knows it as well as anybody. And uh, we've been following him quite a bit, except for this summer, we've kind of taken a break because he's been busy. And that is, of course, Professor Tom Myers, the Bible memory man uh, who knows a large portion of God's Word. And, and we're going to get into that today, Tom, but welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be back. Tom, uh, tell us a little bit about what's been happening this summer at the Institute of Creation Research and the ARC. Well, thanks for asking. We moved from California to Kentucky about 100 days ago, and we've been able to minister, Jimmy, to thousands upon thousands of believers. Number one, I recite the Word of God from memory. So after they walk through the state of the art exhibit at the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky, and they see all the displays that demonstrate the reliability and the accuracy of Scripture, that the Bible really is true, that God really did create the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is therein in six days— after they go through that, then they have the option of hearing me speak what they just experienced from memory from creation to the flood, Genesis 1 through 9. So that's amazing to speak the Word of God publicly like that. And then another thing we do there to equip the saints is we encourage them and inspire them to memorize God's Word. There's all kinds of neat workshops there that cover a variety of subjects that relate to the, the truth of God's Word. And one of the programs I volunteer in is called Learning to Memorize Scripture. And so it's pretty neat, Jimmy, that you can inspire these believers from all over the world, and then they can go back home and take up the discipline of memorizing God's Word. So it's kind of like, I'm almost like replicating my ministry in a way, right? You're inspiring these people who maybe have never encountered someone before who could recite all of Revelation from memory or all of First John from memory. So it's just a wonderful platform there at the Creation Museum for me to use my gifts for God's glory. Well, that's a great thing, and I know that you've had contact with political leaders, uh, people from all over the world that come there, and you've encouraged them, and we won't give them any names, but uh, I know that from your personal testimony to me, you are encouraging these people to give, uh, to memorize Scripture, and that's uh, I think is so very important today. So many times we've gotten away from the Word of God. We don't read the Word of God anymore, which I think is indicative so much of people that, uh, you know, uh, how how much influence it has in our life. And then when we take that out of there, it creates a void and it doesn't guide us as we are followers of Jesus Christ and uh, as Christians. So I appreciate what you do there. It sounds great. Now, I understand that you've got this unbelievable opportunity coming up during the Feast of Tabernacles. And I know the Feast of Tabernacles is usually sometime in uh, September to mid-October, and that will be coming up this year. We're going to get more in depth on that. But tell me about the event that's coming up in uh, this Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, this is so neat, Jimmy. So the last hundred days, like I said, we've been volunteering and using our gifts at the Answers in Genesis Creation Museum. But this October, like you said, during Sukkot, we're going to be at the other Creation Museum, the ICR Creation Museum in Dallas, Texas. And seven of us, Jimmy, from all walks of life, a retired school teacher from Kokomo, Indiana, a church secretary from Houston, Texas, a grandma from... Hackensack, New Jersey, uh. the seven of us getting together during Tabernacles to recite the entire New Testament from memory. So 
one person will do Matthew, another person will do Mark, another person will do Luke, etc. in its entirety, verbatim, over a five-day period, October 11th through the 15th. And what's really cool about it, Jimmy, among other things, is not only is it a public proclamation of the Word of God right before the midterms, just three weeks or so before, mm-hmm. to know what God requires of us, but also it's going to be live streamed. So if you can't come in person, you'll be able to tune in and see something hopefully be inspired to memorize as well, but see something you've never seen before. And it's not every day that you can say that, that <laughs> you could, you've never seen before. And this is it. The whole New Testament from heart. Wow. How long will that take? Well, we're doing it Tuesday through Friday, and every day it's going to be approximately from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Do the math right there. What, about 20 hours or so? Wow. Now, why at the Feast of Tabernacles, Tom? Well, look, sometimes as Gentiles, <laughs> 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, we're not as familiar with the customs and mannerisms of the world of the Bible. And, you know, speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles, just as a footnote, you know, when I lived in Israel and I was able to, to live in the land and, and notice the weather patterns, uh, it didn't rain essentially, right, from, from the harvest season, from uh, Pentecost until Sukkot, until Tabernacles. Generally speaking, it doesn't rain. And so in antiquity, they would grade their property in such a way where the rainwater went to where you wanted it to go. And of course, is, was your cistern. That's where you would use for cooking and cleaning and, and washing your hands and your feet and et cetera. And, you know, on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which of course not only celebrates the coming out, out of Egypt, but that's when they would pray for rain, Jimmy, in antiquity, on the eighth day of the feast. Now, if you read the text, that's when Jesus said, out of me come living waters of life. So when we put calendar to event, it's pretty neat. These people, we can imagine being them for a moment. They're drinking the sludge out of the bottom of their cisterns. They're physically thirsty and also spiritually thirsty. Mm-hmm. So when Jesus says that, out of income living waters of life at that time, it just would have rang true in the hearts and the minds of the people, even more so to us. So it's kind of giving me insights, kind of like, you know, inside baseball stuff, so to speak, that you can pick up living in the land of Israel some of the, the cool things related to tabernacles and, and the Lord's ministry. But we chose it to get to your <laughs> to get to your question is because that's when, as you know, they would read aloud the law once every seven years during that feast. Yes, you know, uh, it was during uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You're so correct. And that's so very important. I mean, the Feast of Tabernacles is given to us in the book of Leviticus 23. It's explained, Deuteronomy, God wanted to appear to the Jewish people. This is really the celebration of their journey out from Egypt until they made it to the promised land. And they still, to this day, in fact, this year I will be in Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles. Sorry, I can't be with you. But how can people go to the event where you're going to be? Well, thanks for asking. They could go to one of two websites. They could go to thebiblememoryman.com or they could go to icr.org. And both of those websites will have uh, more information. And of course, you know, when we get really close to the event, October 11th to the 15th, there will be options on the icr.org homepage to, to watch the live feed of this amazing, totally unique event. Jimmy, I really don't know if any other time in church history, and I've looked, I can't find it where the New Testament was publicly recited from memory in its entirety. It's pretty neat. 
Tom, in these days in which we're living, and of course we focus on Bible prophecy, and of course the Jewish people, as I said earlier, the feasts were given by God to the Jewish people, all a prototype, and Jesus fulfilled the four spring feasts, and he's going to fulfill the three fall feasts. But uh, how is all of this, memorizing God's word in these times, how does it really help us specifically as believers? Well, you know, look at, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he's not dwelling among us on the one hand anymore. I know, though, I will be with you always, even to the end of time. But on the other hand, he's not here. He's at the right hand of the Father. So we can't, you know, see and touch him like they could. But guess what? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. But what we do have is the word, isn't it? (laughs) The quote-unquote other word. And there's nothing like hearing the oracles of the living God spoken in the power of the Holy Spirit with, with, with belief, with faith behind it. And so this is really special, and we're just totally excited for the opportunity to do this on a national stage. Well, we'll, we'll stay in touch with you, and uh, I know the connection is a little rough today, but uh, I do know that people get the gist. We will catch up with you before this event to find out how it's going, preparing for it. And really, in these times in which we're living, as Tom said, having the Word of God inside of us, that's what gives us guidance in this world. This is what helps us make decisions. That's why on this program, as we look at Bible prophecy, we're not just focusing uh, we do focus on world events, but it's in the light of God's prophetic word. Tom, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be praying for you and your ministry. And I also want to uh, just uh, let people know to pray for your father, who you're visiting right now, uh, who has cancer, and we'll keep him in our prayer also. Thank you. We've got to take a break. And when we return, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, starting a brand new series this week, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, you know, so many people come to us and they say, where can they get some solid material? And I I just have to tell them, and I, I think it's worth noting that on our website, there are many items that people can look at as far as helping them in their study of Bible prophecy. That's right, Jimmy. We have books, we have CD series, we have DVD series, and and, and essentially you can get a grounding in Bible prophecy, starting with uh, Revelation, Ezekiel, and Daniel, the three main books of Bible prophecy. Not only do we have the CD series, but we also have a DVD, because some people learn better like that, and we also have it in book form as well. So we've got quite a few things up there in order to give you a framework uh, to look at Bible prophecy, to study Bible prophecy, and to realize by looking at current events like we do today, uh, to realize how close we are to the next main event on God's timeline. You're exactly right. ProphecyToday.com is where you should go to get uh, this information. I want to remind people I will be speaking in Chattanooga on the 27th of August. Hope to see you. If you want to come around, come to the Church of the Highlands out in Hickson, Tennessee. I would love to see you again. That's August 27th. I'll be in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Well, today on our Legacy Series, we're going to begin a brand new series that will answer the question about the reality of hell. And is hell's punishment eternal? However, before we study God's Word on the subject of hell, today we're going to show you through Bible prophecy, given and fulfilled, how it authenticates the Word of God. We have several examples that Dr. Jimmy DeYoung will share, 
And the first one is found in Genesis chapter 15. So take your Bibles, turn there, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior in 1951. So for 60 years, I have known Jesus Christ. For 50 years, I have been a teacher, a preacher, or some type of involvement in ministry after I got saved and was a serious student of the Word of God. For 40 years now, I've been teaching Bible prophecy as a specialty. And I want you to know that the study of Bible prophecy, as far as I'm concerned, has really, for me personally, given authenticity to the Word of God. Now, by faith, I accepted God's Word for what it said about salvation. And then after accepting the Lord through faith and the grace that he is giving, I then started really digging into the word because I became aware of the fact in book of Romans chapter 10, verse 17, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So my faith has been expanded by studying the word of God. But as I studied the prophetic passages, and I've studied every book of the Bible. In fact, I did a little project not too long ago where I decided to have my daily devotions from every book of the Bible, but only the prophetic passages. So I started in Genesis, went all the way to the book of Revelation. And I would study just the prophetic passage. There's a prophetic passage in every book of the Bible. All of those passages fit like a hand in a glove into the understanding of what is going to unfold. In fact, that's what I believe 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 is talking about when it says there's no prophecy of private interpretation. But as I continue to, on a daily basis, study Bible prophecy, I study the Word of God, but in essence, I'm looking for really the prophetic aspect of it so I can uh, prepare myself to do the teaching that I believe God's called me to do. It's been amazing to me to watch. Let me give you a couple examples. Take your Bible and go to the book of Genesis just a moment. The book of Genesis and go to chapter 15. Now, you might recognize Genesis chapter 15 is the Abrahamic covenant. That's the covenant that God makes with Abraham, promising that there would be a nation, a nation that the Lord asked Abraham to bring into existence. It's not the Arab nations that Abraham would father, but instead he would father the Jewish people. He's called a Hebrew, chapter 14 of the book of Genesis. His grandson is called Israel. Jacob in chapter 32 has his name changed from Jacob to Israel. His great-grandson Judah is called a Jew, 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 6. And so we see from Abraham's bowels come forth the nation of the Jewish people, God's chosen people, according to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7 verses 6 to 8. But here in this chapter, we see that the Lord gives Abraham the unconditional Abrahamic covenant upon which all of the Bible is basically based because this sets the stage for everything else to happen in what God's plan is for the Gentiles, for the Jews, and the Christians, the three members of the human family. There's a very interesting statement, though, made here in verse 13 that I want you to look at. In the course of giving him this unconditional covenant, God says to Abraham in verse 13, And he said unto Abram, 
Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. That's the prophecy that God gave Abraham when he gave him the Abrahamic covenant. He's promising to give him a piece of real estate, ten times what they have today, make a nation that would be eternal. But at the same time, he says, you're going to be taken out. Your people will be taken out of this land I promised to you, and you will be a stranger, a foreigner in another land. And he says, for a 400-year period of time. Go to Genesis chapter 46, just a moment. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, which are passing along the heritage that God had promised to Abraham. And when we come over to chapter 46 of the book of Genesis, we see uh, that Jacob now has all 12 of his sons. They start to have children and there are 70 people that would be involved in uh, Jacob's family. Look what it says here in verse six. And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Cana, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all of his seed with him. Look here at verse 27. And the sons of Joseph, which were born in Egypt, were two sons. And all the souls of the house of Jacob, which came into Egypt, were threescore and ten. And so it is that Jacob takes his family of 70 people. They leave. They go into Egypt, which would bring them under 400 years of bondage of slavery. In the book of Exodus, God raises up Moses in the 12th chapter. We see that Moses leads the children of Israel out of that 400 years of bondage back and towards the promised land. And by the way, those that were 70 when they came in, probably 2 million when they come out. Because the text says in Exodus chapter 12, 600 men, 600,000 men plus the women and the children come out. And so we see a prophecy that was given and then fulfilled. And this starts for me to authenticate the word of God. Go to another one. Look over here, if you will, in Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles 36 is the record of Nebuchadnezzar coming into Israel and destroying the temple, devastating the city, and taking the Jewish people out of the land. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 7. Nebuchadnezzar also carried the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Verse 18. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all of these he brought into Babylon. And they burned the house of God, and they break down the wall of Jerusalem, and they burned all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away into Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the king of Persia. Now notice verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept uh, Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years or seventy years. Keep your finger there just for a moment. We'll come back. But go over to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. And look with me at verse 9. Behold, I will send and take all the families of... The north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, 
will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all these nations round about and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and a hissing and a perpetual desolation. And then look at uh, verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, this is a period of time before. This is, uh, you know, a time before all of these prophecies are going to happen. In fact, when Daniel, at about 85 or 90 years of age, in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, was reading for his quiet time, Jeremiah, this is the passage of Scripture he was reading, to understand that the 70 years had been accomplished from the time he left Jerusalem and went into the Babylonian captivity until the time that he was right there. Go to chapter 29 of Jeremiah just a moment. For thus, verse 10, Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. And so prophecies that were given at least uh, almost a hundred years before they were going to come out of Babylon itself, these prophecies were fulfilled just exactly like the Word of God said. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 5, it talks about how one-third of the people in the Jewish people in Israel will be killed, one-third of them will burn up in the, uh, the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem, and one-third of them will be taken into the Babylonian captivity. And the record in Second uh, uh, Chronicles chapter 36 is indicative of that. Now go back to Second Chronicles like I asked you to hold, and let me show you another very interesting prophecy. I'm just trying to give you the prophetic truth, prophecy fulfilled authenticates the word of God. I'm not talking about the prophecies yet to be fulfilled. These prophecies that I'm telling you have been fulfilled are giving us a foundation upon which to believe that every prophecy yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. But these are prophecies that were given and have already been fulfilled. Look at the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra. Now, Ezra is a record of the Medo-Persian empire coming into place after they defeat the Babylonian empire. Verse 2. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Now he was the leader of all of the world. And he hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go unto Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. That is a record of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Go back to Isaiah just for a moment. Sorry to run you all over the Bible. But I want to show you how Bible prophecy that has been given and fulfilled authenticates the word of God. Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah 45 and verse 28. Thus saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all of my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shall be built and to the, and, and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. 150 years before the fact, Isaiah wrote down, there will be a man who will come to power who will allow the Jews to go into Jerusalem and build their temple. And in fact, if you want to be very specific, his name will be Cyrus. 
And the record is in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus was raised up to go in and to, to go in, uh, give the Jews the privilege to go in to rebuild the temple. He selects Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel is given about 50,000 Jews, 49,897 to be exact. And they go back to Jerusalem and they build the temple over a period of time. That is key. So I can grab this book and pick it up and study it and realize it's an authentic word of God because of the prophetic truth. And I've just barely touched the hem of the garment of those prophecies that have been given in the past and fulfilled and those that are in the process of being fulfilled even as we speak. And so I take this word to be the absolute word of God. Absolute, without error, without contradiction. Absolute word of God. We can have the assurance that the Bible is God's absolute word and reveals to us everything that the Lord wants us to know. Again, I remind you that Bible prophecy given to man in the past and then fulfilled in absolute detail gives us the basis upon which we can know prophecy yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. China's zero-COVID policy and repeated lockdowns are taking a toll on the world's second-largest economy. Experts say China isn't likely to start the long journey out of zero-COVID until 2023. Lockdowns and social restrictions hamper churches as well as businesses. China Partners' Eric Berkland says the Lord continues to open doors of opportunity. Pray for wisdom and discernment as leaders navigate the legal process for registering churches online. Meanwhile, it's an interesting time for young people in Turkey. Next year, the modern Republic of Turkey will celebrate 100 years. 2023 will also bring President Erdogan and his government back to the polls. Bruce Allen with FMI says many young people in Turkey haven't known anything other than Erdogan in power. But Turkish Christians know Jesus is the one on the throne. Pray that churches will spread his love throughout the country. There's more at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we have been looking at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And uh, as we told you at the outset of this half hour, we were talking about our website, prophecytoday.com. So many items that you can go look at. 
Uh, again, there are many items that are out there. And I think one of the things that has always helped me is having a proper view of understanding how prophecy unfolds, a proper hermeneutical view of the scriptures, who was the writer writing to at the time that uh, those certain passages of the Bible were written. And that really does help us to understand that Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation are all about prophetic events that are going to take place in the future. And then we're in this time period now of the church age. We're watching as things unfold, watching the Jewish people on a week-to-week basis, examining what's taking place in the European Union, Rick, uh, helps us to see every story that we pick really does point to an event that will take place in the future because we believe that the rapture of the church is an imminent event. So as we look at our stories, as we listen to our broadcast partners today, uh, I, I wonder, you know, as we examine these, what things that you found would be important for people to focus on? Well, Jimmy, basically just what you were talking about right there, putting things in a proper hermeneutic, or in other words, making sure that things are in their proper context. And it was very interesting. I know that we definitely look at the Bible as uh, one document from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and it agrees with each other the whole way through. And one thing that Dave Dolan said that really stood out to me when he said it, all of this animosity, Jimmy, that is taking place between the Palestinians and the uh, Muslim world against the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. It's all about whose God is God. Yes. You know, the Legacy Series with our our dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, today, he starts out, he starts out, and let me remind you, he starts out talking about how long he's been in the ministry. Remember, that program, the one that we focus on today, he did when he was 60 years old. He lived to the age of 80. And so add 20 to those numbers. But he had been studying for a long time. And in the program today, he's going back showing how, uh, as we see from Genesis to Revelation, Rick, you shared that, that, you know, we see that God has a program in the very beginning. Satan's subtle strategy was throughout history was to try to defeat God. And he could defeat God by bringing down the holy angels, which he did. I drew a third of the angels with him when Satan fell from the heavens and he wanted to defeat the Jewish people. And throughout history, he has tried many times to bring many different ways of destroying God's chosen people, the Jewish people. To the Jewish people throughout history, he's been trying to wipe out the Jewish people using false religions, whether it be Islam, whether it be other religions that try to... Uh, and anti-Semitic religions, as we looked at, and that's what happened with uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, and their thought process. It's just really interesting, and I thought that was a very good statement that David made about whose God is God. The other thing that we notice as we look at the Bible, like I said, in context from start to finish, is we realize that God has a plan, a plan that begins in Genesis and continues all the way through the Bible. And as it goes along, uh, God has used prophecy in order to uh, let people know what's coming. He used it to announce the coming of Jesus Christ and the most important event in all of history, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then he has also used it to tell us what's going to take place in the future. And when we listen to Ken Timmerman today, and he starts to talk about 
Turkey and Russia negotiating uh, the, the leader of uh, Turkey, an Islamic leader, a man who wants to be the leader of the Islamic world, Erdogan. He is negotiating with Russia right now. And we realize that all these players have been mentioned in Bible prophecy, and they're going to play a key role in what takes place in the end times after the rapture of the church. Yeah. You know, uh, we've focused on this many times. And again, I know it sounds like sometimes, uh, you know, these are the same stories, the same countries, the same people. Uh, well, that's for a reason, because it is. <laughs> they're, they're not changing. Uh, they're mentioned in Ezekiel 38. The first mention of these and the d- dispersion of nations and people and, and a language was mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 10. That's how we can understand the nations that are talked about today in Bible prophecy. And that's why we focus and and watch what takes place in Magog. That's why we watch what takes place in Meshach, Tubal, uh, Tagarma. Uh, that is modern-day Turkey. Magog, modern-day Russia. When you look at Persia, that's modern-day Iran. Uh, again, we have to remind you that we focus on these countries so that we might understand the times and the hours in which we live. Bible prophecy helps us to do that. When we listened to Winky Madad in the second half hour, Jimmy, one of the main things that struck me, actually two things that struck me. The first is that we are continuing to focus on that sacred piece of real estate, uh, the Temple Mount there in the city of Jerusalem. It was essential and integral in God's plan, um, and it'll be so in the future again. But the other thing uh, that struck me as well there is he was talking about how the media— can oftentimes, and he gave examples, and you can go to his article in Jerusalem Post, he gave examples about how the media is just slightly slanting things, the way, the language that they use when referring to the t- Temple Mount and what took place there. Uh, always we take a look and we keep our eye on God's holy mountain. Sixteen times it says in the scripture, God's holy mountain, Mount Moriah and the city of Jerusalem. Um the times of the Gentiles, Gentile world powers control the city of Jerusalem. And that began when the destruction of the temple uh, that took place in, in uh, 586 when Nebuchadnezzar came in. It was rebuilt by Herod the Great. Uh, it was destroyed again in 70 AD. And there hasn't been a temple there since 70 AD. And of course, people are looking toward a temple being rebuilt there. And that is part of that subtle strategy that Satan is using to gain control. Zechariah talked about it in the book of Zechariah chapter 12. There's control in that area today. And we will continue to focus on that, that temple mount, that holy uh, spot in the city of Jerusalem and the Jewish people, as long as we do this program, because we examine current events, and the light of God's prophetic word. Well, Rick, thank you so much for joining with us today. Thank you for doing all the hard work, asking the questions, and I look forward to joining again with you next week. My pleasure, Jimmy. Looking forward to it as well. Folks, with all that's taking place in the world today, the rapture can't be far away. It could even happen within the next few moments. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.